Well, today, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open those with me to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 6 through 14, and I want to speak to you on the topic of the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. So if you found your place there, as we honor the word of God and submit to it as our final authority, I want you to stand with me if you are able for a moment, as we honor the reading of this word today. And we will begin in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul writes, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The word of God, you may be seated. One of the richest passages in scripture we see is right there in Galatians chapter 3. Such a rich theological passage that points our hearts and minds back to the gospel. You know, it was just a few weeks ago that Emily and Sadie and myself were out out west taking a trip. We were in West Texas and we were going to look at some national parks and visit some really interesting places. And there was a day that we were driving through West Texas going south toward Big Bend National Park. And if you've been in West Texas, you'll know that that is one of the most desolate, one of the most wide open space areas that you would ever see. There's just not a lot of things out there other than the beauty of creation. And it is beautiful. It's a beautiful place to go visit if you've never been. But as we were making our way toward Big Bend National Park, which is right on the Rio Grande River in bordering Mexico, we went through a little town called Alpine where we stopped and had lunch. And then we only had about 75 more miles left to go until we made it to the park. And as we were driving along this 75-mile stretch, we had to stop for some reason. And I remember when we stopped, we were about 30 miles into this, into this road. And I looked down at the map, and all of a sudden I realized that I was not on the road that I had planned to be on. I'm not sure what happened if we turned too soon or if my, uh, if my map expertise wasn't working well. But we were not on the road that we intended to be on. And I told Emily that, and she said, well, do you think we need to turn around and go back? And as I began looking at the map, I realized that even though we weren't on the road that we had planned to be on, it was still a road that would take us to the National Park. In fact, it would come in through a back entrance. And that's something that we've found over time as we've visited these national parks is that there are a lot of routes that you can take to get in the parks. There's not just one major highway that goes. Many of the parks have different roads and some go through canyons, some go along beside rivers, some cross over mountains. And really, if you can take some of these different roads, you can see a lot of different things that you wouldn't otherwise see in these places. 
So we went in the back road to the park. We saw all kinds of beautiful sights that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. And then when we left, we went out the way that we had planned to go in. But you know, what's true for the national parks about having many roads that will take you there is not true when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to going to heaven. The Bible teaches that there is only one way to get to heaven, and that's through faith alone in Jesus Christ. There's not multiple paths. There's not many roads. There's not a a bunch of different ways that you can get there other than placing your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But you know, as we live in a pluralistic age, there are many other religions that are out in the world all promising that their path or their road will also get you to heaven. We live in an age of pluralism where there are some who teach that that all religions are equally valid, that all of them will get you to the same place in the end as long as you are at least faithful to one of them while you're here on earth. And this kind of uh, false teaching is being spread through our colleges and universities. It's through our media and through what's on television. We see all kinds of folks that believe there are many ways to heaven, but yet the scriptures teach that there is only one And it comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And that is a foundational truth that we understand from Scripture. But yet not everyone who even follows Scripture gets it completely right. Because even though some are committed to following along the path of the Bible, they get confused when it comes to how to complete the journey or how to get right with God. You see, some people fall off into the trap or get off course onto the road of works righteousness. They believe that, yes, the Bible teaches us how we can get to heaven, but after they see all of the commandments and the laws and the standards and the works and everything the Bible prescribes, they look at all of those things and they understand their own sinfulness and they say, if I really want to get right with God and get to heaven that's described in the Bible then it's a matter of me doing enough good deeds in my life to cover over all the things that I haven't done right in my life. If I can just do enough good works, if I can just do enough right things, if I can just help enough people, go to church enough times and do everything God has called me to do, and hopefully if my good outweighs my bad, then God is going to receive me into heaven. That is the model of works righteousness. It's like people who go to work every week and they punch a time card. They put their card in in the morning. They work the required amount of hours during the day. In the evening, they punch their card again and get paid at the end of the week. Some people think that our whole lives are an accumulation of righteous works. And in the end, our card will be handed to God and he will punch us as righteous and then we will enter into heaven. That's the works righteousness theology that we see so many people doing. But you know, maybe there's some of you here today who feel that way about your own salvation. Maybe you've always assumed in your mind that if you want to get to heaven, it's all about how much you do, how good you are, how much you perform for God, how little maybe you've done wrong or tried to do or tried not to do wrong. And you think that in the end of your life that God is going to look at you and examine your record and look at everything that you've done and make a decision on whether you should come into heaven or not according to how clean your record looks based upon what you've done. But that is a theology of works righteousness. And let me tell you, if you go down that road of works righteousness, it will lead to a dead end. 
And it leads not only to a dead end, but a very dangerous and disastrous position once you get there. Because the Bible teaches that no one will be found acceptable to God, no matter how many good works you have done, no matter how many mistakes you've tried to avoid, no matter how many religious things you've accomplished, no one who has ever been born will ever find the grace and the glory of God through that route. It leads to a dead end. And you see, this is where the false teachers were going wrong with those in Galatia. They were teaching that, that there was a road that you should take as Gentiles, as Galatians, that would lead to heaven. But if you wanted to travel on this road, it would require you to do a lot of things in order to please God, such as circumcision and following Old Testament laws and customs and rules. And if you could do all of these things faithful enough, then you would finally be able to reach God in the end. You see, that is a theology that we see not only in ancient times, but even still today. It's works righteousness. I was watching a, a popular television talk show just a few weeks ago, and, and the, uh, the host on the show was interviewing Gary Sinise, who is famous Lieutenant Dan from uh, Forrest Gump. And you may remember that over the years, Gary Sinise has a big heart for those in the military who were like him in the movie. And he's raised all of this money to support the wounded warriors and the veterans and those who've come back from service. A very admirable thing that he has done, a very gracious thing. He supported them. And the man who was leading the talk show at the end said, surely he is going to heaven because of all of these things that he's done, because of how good he's been to all of these veterans. You see, that's what our culture believes. It's all about how much we do in this life. And that's what the false teachers were saying to those in Galatia. Well, Paul knew that salvation was not through works, but through faith in Christ alone. And last week, as we looked at the beginning of chapter 3 in verses 1 through 5, Paul argued that if you really believe that salvation is through your works, through what these false teachers are saying, then go back to your own experience of when you came to know Christ. And remember how you received the Holy Spirit and then ask yourself, did it come through the works of the law or through faith? And all of those who were honest and in the right mind would have to agree it came through our faith. So he showed them that through their faith in Christ, they became who they are in him, not through works. In other words, don't be led astray. It's not through works. It's only through faith. But in order to hammer the point home even further, Paul turns away from their personal experience and turns to the even more reliable truths found in God's word. He turns them to the life of Abraham, a man who was truly made righteous through his faith in order to show them how scripture teaches, even from Old Testament times, that a person must come to God through faith and not through works. Now, the reason that Paul chose the life of Abraham was it is because that the false teachers were probably using Abraham as a model, a wrong model for works righteousness. They'd point back to the father of the Jewish faith and they'd say, you see, here's a man, Abraham. He was made right with God, but he was also circumcised. He also kept all the requirements God told him to do. I mean, he even tried to once offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice in order to please God. And all of that combined is what made him righteous with God. But Paul says that's not it. It was because of Abraham's faith in the coming Christ that led him to righteousness with God. And that is the message that we all need to understand today is that our salvation only comes through faith in the person and work of Christ 
if we have any hope of going to heaven. Now, there may be some of you here today who are wondering, what must I do to be saved? There may be some of you here today who say, you know what, I've lived a pretty decent life. I hope that I've done enough in order to please God so that when it comes time to pass away, then I will go to heaven. I hope I've got it in order. There could be some of you today who are simply wondering, well, how do I live each day in a way that honors God, even though I make plenty of mistakes? Well, the answer comes in a phrase that we see in Scripture where it says, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That is the key to being made right with God. And that's what I wanna talk to us today is about the righteous living by faith and how that can be a reality in your life and in those that you witness to or share with. There's basically three sections that I want you to notice today when it comes to understanding how the righteous shall live by faith. And I want to begin with the first section here, justified by faith. We're justified by faith. You see, the truth about salvation that's presented all across the Bible from beginning to end is that the only way that a person can be made right with God and thus inherit eternal life is through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's that's not just a New Testament doctrine. It's not just a doctrine that we see given by the Apostle Paul. It's a doctrine that covers the whole span of the Bible, if you understand it correctly. And the great example of this truth comes from one of the most ancient figures that we see in the Bible, the person of Abraham. And this is where Paul begins his biblical defense of this truth. But before we look actually into the passage that we're going to to follow today, It's very important that we understand a little bit of the background behind Abraham, that we understand a little bit of the context about what Paul is talking about. We want to take a bird's eye view of what the Bible teaches about the life of Abraham so that we can understand what Paul is saying in these passages today. And I can tell you that if if I were to put together a top 10 list of the most important chapters in the Bible, and it would be hard to do, I would have to say that Genesis 12, would be in the list because Genesis 12 is one of the most foundational chapters for understanding the reason that we have salvation today. If you remember the book of Genesis, it talks about God creating a perfect world and then Adam and Eve falling into sin and being cursed, which is, which is given to all of us today as a curse. While we can't have salvation on our own, we're all cursed uh, to sin and death. And if you follow through Genesis, you'll know that, that um, you know, there's a lot of death, there's murder, there's all kinds of crime. God has had enough. He, he destroys the entire world outside of Noah's family. And then after Noah's family is saved and there's a new earth, all of a sudden sin and corruption comes back. Tower of Babel is built and, and it just looks like there's absolutely no hope that anyone will ever be made right with God. No one is righteous. The whole world is filled with wickedness. And then you come to Genesis 12, where God calls upon a man named Abram at this point, who would later become Abraham. And he gives him a promise that through him and through his descendants, through his seed or offspring, that he is going to bless the entire world, those who are included in this blessing with salvation. That he is going to make it possible for people from every continent, from every nation to be saved. He's going to make it possible for people to come to be right with God once again. And this is something that God is going to do himself. 
In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was a promise that God made to Abram to say that I am going to save a multitude of people throughout all of history through a descendant that will come from you, the Messiah. I'm going to do it. I promise that it will happen. It's not going to be about you and your efforts or your work, but it's going to be something that I'm going to personally do as God. God later relates. He says that these people are going to be so massive. It would be like sand on the seashore, like dust on the earth, like stars in the heavens. That's how many people are going to be blessed through what I'm going to do in your life. And you see, when Abraham hears this, in the next scene, God makes a visible covenant with him where God appears to him as a fire. And there's animal sacrifices that are split on the ground. And it says that God moves his way through the sacrifices to symbolize that it is going to be he and him alone that will perform all of these things and see it to fulfillment. So right there from the beginning, salvation was not about what Abraham would do, but about what God would do and apply to him. That's how salvation begins. But here's where we run into a problem. The Jewish people of Paul's day and these Judaizers of the false teachers, they were agreeing that this is all true about Abraham. But the question was, how do we get to be a part of this blessed offspring that gets to go to heaven? How do we get to be a part of, 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 or how do we get to be a child of Abraham that will be blessed for all of eternity? That's the biggest question of all time. In other words, how do we get to be saved? Well, the Jewish people said it merely comes by us being biological Jews. Just by being born into the Jewish race, being circumcised, keeping the law, all of those things lead to our salvation. And if any of these Gentiles in the Galatian region wants to become a person that is saved, then they must become Jewish. They must take on a Jewish identity. They must become circumcised. They must look at the Old Testament law. They must fulfill the requirements, go through the ceremonies, act just like a Jew. And if they've done enough of those things over their life, in the end, God will count them among this multitude that he is saving. And they go back to what the scriptures teach about the life of Abraham. And they say, see, Abraham is an example. This was a man that God told, told, uh, he told salvation about to him and, and he was circumcised. He did all the things God asked him to do and then God made him righteous. That's the model we should follow. But you see, this is where the apostle Paul says, wait a minute, stop. Don't, don't, mis, don't mislead all of the people by making them think that Abraham is the poster child of works righteousness. He was not saved through works righteousness. He was saved through his faith. It was through faith. And this is where we pick up in verse six. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, this is another one of those foundational verses in scripture because this is a part from Genesis 15 where God said, look forward to the heavens and number the stars. And if you are able to number them, he said, so shall your offspring be. God once again reminded Abraham that I'm going to do a great thing among you. 
I'm going to provide salvation for people from all the nations of the world. And I'm going to do this for everyone. And it's going to come through the Messiah that will, that will come from one of your descendants. And notice what it said, that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteous. He counted it to him as righteousness. Now, why does Paul use this verse here to argue a faith-based salvation? Well, because when it says here that Abraham believed, it indicates that he simply believed what God had said. He believed the word that God had spoken. He believed that God was going to do everything that he said that he was going to do. And Abraham believed that to the point that his heart turned toward the things of God and he was willing at that point to do whatever God called him to do, to go wherever he called him to go, to perform whatever duty he called him to to be a part of because he believed that God was going to do all of these things. So in essence, it was Abraham's faith first that led to all of his righteous works later that was a sign of his being with God. And what's interesting here is it says that when Abraham believed that God counted counted it to him as righteousness. You see, the word counted means to credit something or to reckon something to someone. And it says the moment that Abraham simply believed or trusted or had faith in what God said, that God poured all of the righteousness of Christ, the perfect life that Abraham didn't live, that was required for salvation, God poured it all into his life and gave him credit for living a perfect life even though he didn't live a perfect life. That was the only way that he was made right with God. It was because his heart had faith in what God said that he was going to do. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, I'm not a scholar, but Jesus wouldn't come for thousands of more years. How did he receive the righteousness of Christ if Jesus had not even come yet? Well, the truth is, is that God opened up Abraham's heart and mind to foresee the coming of Christ, to see the perfect Savior, to understand all that Jesus would do in his life and on the cross so that that's the way the world would be saved through him. That's why Abraham followed after what God said. In fact, Jesus himself says in John chapter 8, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Abraham saw through the eyes of prophecy. He saw the day of Christ. He rejoiced. He decided to follow after God and do what God called him to do. And that act of faith emptied all of Christ's righteousness into his account so that he would be made perfect before God. Now, some of you wonder, what does this mean for us today? This was a long time ago. What does this mean for us as humans living in 2015? Look what it says in verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So this is the main point. Because of the faith that was made in Abraham's life to where he was given the righteousness of God, It gives us a model of how God wants everyone to come to him. 
And as scripture looked ahead and saw what Christ would do on the cross and saw the sin and iniquity of the world, it saw that everyone who would believe in Christ, no matter what continent, what nation, what people they were from, all of them would be made righteous with God because of the promise that was given to Abraham. It would come to anyone who placed faith in the Lord Jesus. It would not come as a result of their works or their goodness or what family they were from or what church they belonged to. It would only come through their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what if I were able to tell you today that you could look back over your whole life and calculate all the mistakes that you've made? Well, it would be pretty horrifying, wouldn't it? There's a lot of things that we're ashamed of, things that we would give anything to be taken away from our past. But here's the truth. When you place faith in Jesus Christ, God fills in all of your mistakes with the righteousness of Jesus. It's as if you never even committed one sin throughout your life. Now you have committed sin, but the way that God sees you, it's as if you never committed those sins. Because in your past, everywhere that you went wrong, God twists it around and makes it go right through Jesus. He gives you the credit for doing what was right, even though when you did it wrong. And that only comes through having faith in the Lord Jesus. That's the only way that you could be made righteous enough in order to enter heaven is to be made perfect like Christ by having his righteousness given to you or credited to you. Some of you may say, well, what does such a faith look like? If it's not about works, how do we get it? Well, the faith that the Bible talks about is simply this. It's where you come to an understanding that you're not good enough for heaven. You're not good enough for God. And you realize there's a lot of sin in your life. But then you also believe what God said about how Christ died for you and how he paid the penalty for your sin and how his righteousness can be given to you. And you say, you know what? I believe that this is the true way to heaven, the true way to eternal life. And because I believe it, I believe it to the point that I'm willing to turn over my whole life to Jesus and start following him. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's not going to be the most popular thing to do. I know it's going to cost me a lot. I know there's sin that I'm going to have to give up, but it's far better to follow Jesus because I believe in him than it is to follow the path of the world, which leads to eternal destruction. And when your heart gets to that point and God sees that faith in your life, that's when he credits you with the righteousness of Christ through the Holy Spirit. When all of your sins are forgiven and removed, And then you will truly be marked as a child of God, a descendant of Abraham, and you are in him through faith. That's where you have to be in order to get saved. It's not about your works. It's not about anything you can do, but what Christ did for you and you believing upon him. That's what it means to be justified by faith. And because we're justified by faith, any attempt that we make on our own to get right with God will always end in failure. Because none of us can ever be good enough in our lives to please God. And that's what I want us to see here quickly in number two is simply that we're cursed by the law. Notice what he says here in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now in the scriptures, a curse is a divine judgment that brings about the sentence of eternal death. In other words, it's, it's the curse of a person suffering in hell for all of eternity because of their sins. There's nothing they can do to get out of it. It will never end. They are simply cursed and doomed for eternity. So if Paul is saying that a, that a person can't be 
made right on their own by keeping a law, why is that? Why can't we do enough to please God? Well, look, there's two reasons I want you to see. Two reasons. The first is simply the law was never possible to keep. The law was never possible to keep. Look what he says at the end of verse 10 where he's quoting from Deuteronomy. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This is a scene in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is leading the people into the promised land, which he himself would never be able to enter. But he tells them before they go in on the mount there that if you really want to live by the law, you must do everything right according to it if you want to be saved. Otherwise, you will be cursed for not living it out completely. And you see, the fact that those who trust in the law are obligated to keep the whole thing becomes a curse upon us. Because the truth is, none of us can keep the law perfect enough in order to be saved. You would have to never make a single mistake and do everything God says perfectly. So that's why the law is a curse. Because if anyone tries to keep it, they will always fail. They will never succeed. All of us are born with sinful hearts and minds. We don't have the ability to do what God told us to do in the first place. Notice in verse 12, he he says it like this, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. He's simply saying here that trying to keep the law is the opposite of faith. You're trusting in yourself rather than trusting in the God who said that he was going to save you. And if you really want to go this route, you have to live perfectly. It's the opposite of biblical faith. You know, the Bible teaches us many things about sin and death, but in Romans 3.23, it simply says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means every one of us has not met God's standards. All of us have fallen short. There's not enough good works we can do to ever get back on track with the law. We've already blown it. 1 John 1.8 says, if we have, say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Anyone who lives today that says, I've never committed a sin is simply a liar. The truth of God is not in them. Everyone has sinned. Even for those who think that they've done enough, James chapter 2, verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. What that simply means is that if you think you've really done more good, and bad, more good than bad in your life, all it takes is one mistake to keep you out of heaven. If you make one mistake and you do a billion things right, that one mistake is just like you've done everything wrong. We're all corrupted. You know, we were having dinner the other night at a restaurant and Sadie was coloring on a coloring sheet that they brought out. And let me just tell you, we're very thankful for those coloring sheets, by the way. It really helps a lot. But as she was coloring, I was trying to help her. I noticed that she kept coloring outside of the lines and she was coloring all over the sheet. And I said, Sadie, look, follow the lines, color inside the lines. Well, she tried and it was just a mess and she couldn't do it. Artwork to her. But Emily said, you know, she's only two. (laughs) She, She can't color inside the lines yet. She doesn't have the ability. And the same is true for all of us as fallen creatures. All of us are outside of the lines of God's will. We're all outside of the law. We've all crossed boundaries that God told us not to cross. And the reason is, is that we're human. We don't have the ability to do what God has said to do. It's something that can't happen. So the law was never possible for us to live by in the sense of salvation. But another reason we see in scripture is that the law was never prescribed to save us. 
Not only is it not possible to keep, but God never intended for the law to save us. It was never prescribed. Look in verse 11. He says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. You see, this is not New Testament theology. Paul is quoting from the prophet Habakkuk here in chapter 2, verse 4, where Habakkuk is simply stating that if a person wants to be saved, they want to be made right with God, it only comes through faith, not through works of the law. And there is no amount of works that you could ever do to change your own heart, to give you a righteous credit with God. You see, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So if perfection from us is what God demands for eternal life, we can't get there through the law. We can't get there through our own efforts. The law was never prescribed to give us perfection. It was only prescribed to guide us and really to show us our sinfulness. So the question becomes, if we have to be perfect before God in order to be saved, how can any one of us ever get there? How can we ever get there? Well, this leads us to our third and final section that I want you to see. And it's simply redeemed by Christ. Simply redeemed by Christ. So because of our sinful and helpless condition, God made a promise with Abraham way back in Genesis 12 that has lasting results today. And it was simply the promise to say, even though you are all failures, you've all sinned, you're all fallen creatures of Adam, I am going to personally do something in order for everyone who believes and follows me to come into my kingdom. I am going to do this. So what did God do? Well, notice what it says here in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So how can we be made right with God? The scriptures teach that God did something for us that we would never be able to do for ourselves. He sent Jesus Christ to redeem us. The word redeem comes from the Greek word meaning to buy or to purchase. And it was used in Jesus' day when it came to buying slaves out of slavery and back into freedom. If you wanted to free a slave, there was a price that had to be paid before they could go free. And in the New Testament, it's a word that describes the actual person and work of Christ and what he did on our behalf. Because as Jesus lived a perfect life, and died as a sacrifice on the cross, he actually did all of that in order to pay for us to come out of the slavery of sin and death that we were bound to, that we could never free ourselves from. Jesus paid the ultimate price for all of those things to happen. It's like Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, which is the sinful life, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that, that like that of a lamb without a blemish or a spot. Paul is telling us that Jesus Christ came into this world to become a curse for us, to pay for our sins so that we could have eternal life. Notice here it says, that as Jesus became a curse for us, he quotes the Old Testament saying, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now this is something that's very, very important to understand. 
very important. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, he was up there as a sacrifice for all of us who would believe. Jesus was there in our place. And in the Old Testament times, when a person would commit a a vile offense or a murder or something that was just terrible in society, they would be stoned to death. And then they would actually be placed up on a wooden pole for everyone to look at until sunset. And what was known is that the one who is up on the wooden pole is actually receiving the curse of God, the curse of eternal damnation in a place called hell. They are cursed by God forever and ever. And it was a deterrent that you don't want to follow in the footsteps of this person because they are cursed by God. God is turned away from them and he is letting them suffer for all of eternity. And this is a symbol of that. You see what Paul is saying is that when Jesus was on the cross, it's not a mistake or a coincidence that Jesus was on a wooden cross. Thousands of years before Roman execution was even invented, the Bible was already talking about something like a cross. And when Jesus was on the cross, it was a symbol that he was taking on all of the curses of God, that his very body was cursed on our behalf. You say, well, why did Jesus have to receive the curse of God? Because that's what was due to all of us. Because we were sinners, Christ had to be in our place and we were due death. We were due eternal punishment in hell. We were due the wrath of God. All of that was supposed to come to us and it will come to us if we're not in Christ. But you see, Jesus took all of that upon himself on the cross so that God's wrath would be turned away from us and placed upon him. All of our sins transferred to him so that when he died, all of our guilt was taken away. All of our sins were paid for. Everything that we were owed in the form of a curse was placed upon him so that we could have a righteous account before God. And the very righteousness that Christ lived out, the perfect life that he lived, never committing any sin, all of that righteousness gets transferred over to us. So here's the most important thing. When God sees a believer at the end of his or her life, He doesn't see you for all the sins you've committed or everything you've done wrong. He doesn't keep up with all of your mistakes. He sees a perfect Jesus standing in your place. And that's what he bases his judgment upon when you enter into heaven. Not you, but Christ. You say, what about all my sin? All of your sin was transferred over to Jesus so that when God looks at him, your sins are being put to death with him. That's the way that a person is saved through faith. That's why it's the only way to be saved. Because none of us can keep the law good enough. None of us can change our hearts. None of us can forgive our own sins. Only Christ can do that. And we must unite to him through faith. This is why he finishes with these words. So that in Christ, in verse 14, Jesus being the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, that's the goal. God wants all humans to come to himself through faith. But it requires the faith in Christ in order to come to God. And only those who turn from their sins and trust in Christ will be forgiven. So bottom line today, if you are trusting in your works, your own goodness, if you're hoping that you've got it in order, if you're hoping that your life would add up enough to please God, you are at a dead end already. You'll never get there. You'll never be good enough. But if you say today that I know I'm not good enough, I know I've failed God, I know that I'm not going to be in heaven based upon my own merit, but Jesus Christ did everything required for me to get there. 
I today want to turn from my sins and follow him. I don't care what it costs me, how it feels. I don't care what I'm gonna have to give up, who I'm going to disappoint. I'm going to follow Jesus with my life. That act of faith is what's required to save you. And maybe that's where some of you need to be today. Maybe you've been trusting in your own self for way too long and you know it's never going to get you there. Would you turn to Jesus Christ and be saved today?